paper I'm going to give today is based on um, a UK-wide study of immigration and um, social cohesion undertaken between 2005 and 2008. And I want to straight away mention my um, co-researchers and co-authors of uh, the book that's coming out of the project, details on the last slide, which are Helen Crowley and Nick Mellon. And uh, so uh, the paper I'm giving today is entirely indebted to our joint work. So I'm going to go through, I, I time this roughly, so it should be about 50 minutes, although I always take longer than when I time it. Um, but anyway, our intention in this UK-wide study was to explore the actual lived lives and practices of both uh, new immigrants and uh, the long-term settled population. Sorry. And um, through this lens of studying both immigrants and the long-term settled, consider contemporary social cohesion policies in the UK. And one of the key strands of the research was predicated on understanding how previous immigrations are perceived and experienced and how this informs the contemporary moment of immigration. So this historical slant was very key to the whole project. We were particularly interested in layered histories of migration and historically uh, constituted diaspora spaces, that is, the spaces of multicultural encounter in all their specificities. For many people, migration is a key indicator and often, as we know, the scapegoat of social change. And in Britain, it's associated with periods of uncertainty involving economic expansion, reconstruction or restructuring, and with political transformations such as independence for former British colonies and the, um, in quotes, end of empire. We emphasise the importance of understanding social cohesion in the nation through the formation and reformulation of prevailing narratives of belonging, obligation and identity. And these narratives inform the way social heterogeneity resulting from social and geographical mobilities and the porousness of multicultural spaces of encounters is managed in different places and at different levels encompassing the global, the national, and the local. So I'll just say that, I'll go over that again, because it's quite a key point, really. That, um, so we were very um, interested to establish what were the narratives in different places across the UK informing the way social heterogeneity um, and the porousness of what we're calling multicultural spaces of encounter or diaspora spaces is managed and how it's managed differently in different places at different levels and in different times. Now, our definition of social cohesion is different to the one, uh, how can I put it, bandied about in government circles. It's probably the best way of putting it. And it's this. And obviously, and I'll just read it to you. Our definition of social cohesion in analysing the relationship between the arrival of new migrant groups and social cohesion is the following. The ability within individuals and groups living in a place to manage the inequalities, differentiations and tensions intervening within and between them in terms they perceive as positive and successful. 
This is a very different definition to most that are used in government, certainly distinct from the community cohesion agenda, which is really a set of social cohesion in terms of external criteria, which are then applied to looking at a place or a locality. Whereas we're looking at places and localities and trying to identify what are the means of generating social co cohesion within those areas. And obviously we came to this definition based on uh, the, the myriad interviews that we did across the UK, of which more in a moment. So the analysis of the factors underpinning social cohesion shows that there is a relation between social cohesion, long-term local histories of migrant diversity, and the ability to survive post-industrialism and neoliberalism through the support of new migrant groups. By conceptualising social cohesion as an individual and social ability to navigate or negotiate inequality and difference, whose successfulness is contextual and processional, that is the outcome of a dynamic process, we accept really based on drawing on our own findings and also to some extent on Chantal Mouffe's writings, the intrinsic pluralism, fluidity and potentially conflictual basis of all social arrangements. The paper that I'm going to give today considers material, because it's a vast project as you'll see in a minute and I'm just taking one small element of it. The paper considers material drawn from in-depth live narrative interviews in the two sites that we researched in London. We did six sites across the UK, Dungannon in Northern Ireland, Glasgow, um, Leicester, Peterborough and two places in London. And the two in London were Kilburn in the northwest of the city and Downham in the southeast. The research aimed to engage with Downham and Kilburn in an ex exploration really of the complexities of so-called cosmopolitan London by exploring the way in which the historical experience of migrancy and hybridity, or its lack, can be a factor sustaining or hindering social cohesion. Both, places are social, both these places in London are socially and economically deprived areas, but they constitute examples of contrasting responses to contemporary immigration. Our aim was to outline the differing ways in which previous immigrations are referenced or not, and how current immigrations are represented in discussion of migration. So the paper begins by explaining some of our terms of reference, and then the majority of it is about the narratives of place, migrations, and multicultural encounter that we um, discovered in both Kilburn and Downham through the interviews that we did. And in this way, we were trying to chart local resiliences and vulnerabilities and establish what could underpin both, both um, factors in local areas. So our terms of reference. The study assumed that in order to uh, comprehend the relationship between social cohesion and new immigration, which was really our task, it was funded by the Joseph Browntree Foundation, Research about new arrivals has to be integrated with understandings about the long-term settled population. And indeed, perhaps the latter should be the chief focus of attention, not immigrants themselves. The usefulness of the term long-term settled rather than indigenous population or host community is that it encompasses all those not categorized as new immigrants, 
and directs attention to the history and influence of different phases of immigration to the United Kingdom and the inherent heterogeneity of the, in quotes, British people. The definition of a new immigrant we used includes labour migrants, documented and undocumented, refugees and asylum seekers, who'd arrived since 1997. It is during this period that there was obviously an upward curve in, in, um, in, in a strong upward curve in immigration and to some and in demand for migrant labour. The corollary of this definition of new immigrant is that the definition of long-term settled in our study was anyone who'd been settled in Britain before 1997. The expression long-term settled positions those who consider themselves the hosts. But many, of course, resident in the UK because of long-forgotten immigrations, equally with minority ethnic communities who, in the very use of that term, or another widely used term, black and minority ethnic, are usually positioned in a subordinate role in the nation. The category long-term settled, therefore, attempts to give equal consideration to the different stakes and concerns within a national population characterised by a range of social divisions. We did also use, especially identifying um, individual uh, interviewees, participants, we used the term long-term settled majority ethnic. And I have to say what our definition of that is, because we use that to refer, and we were doing this in the mid-2000s, so we use that to refer to people who might often be called the white community or the host community. But for us, the term long-term settled majority ethnic encompassed all those people who would have ticked white British in the 2001 census. We specifically do not include in the term long-term settled majority ethnic people who in the 2001 census would have ticked white Irish or white other. So the long-term settled minority ethnic are basically everyone in who would have ticked, participated in the 2001 census who didn't tick the wide British box. Every other category is included in long-term settled minority ethnic. Um, and obviously, a very high proportion of the people <coughs> responding in 2001 uh, to the census who did not tick white British were actually the product of the post-Second World War movements into Britain from the Caribbean, the Indian subcontinent, Ireland, and their children and grandchildren. We wanted to mobilize memories of migration and settlement focusing on the settled population as heterogeneous and exploring the relationship of this to place. In this way, we hope to illustrate how complex are the patterns of inward and outward migration that make up the history of the UK. Our methods included conducting 40 biographical life narrative interviews with local residents in each site, uh, conducting 15 key informed interviews in, on, in each site, so that was 330 interviews altogether, and these were long, <coughs> long interviews, an ethnographic study in each place. So as you can imagine, we accumulated a massive amount of data. We make no claim about the sample being representative, although we adopted a rigorous form of purposive sampling, rather the interest lies in the patterns that can emerge from such life history narrative interviews combined with the key informant interviews and the ethnographies. These narratives are shaped by the present in which, obviously, the present in which they are told and the particular problematic 
of new immigration and social cohesion that we presented. In addition, there are public stories about immigration that contextualize these individual narratives, as becomes obvious. So before, last thing before moving into the actual presentation of data about Kilburn and uh, Darren, I just want to talk a little about locality and belonging. We operationalize place stroke locality as a strategic vantage point from which to observe the emergence of harmonious and or antagonistic social relations between the long-term settled and newly arriving populations. Conceptualizing the embedding of social relations within a specific spatial dimension allows us to address the increased significance of localized narratives, histories, and socioeconomic realities in the contemporary experiences of social cohesion. Exploring contemporary social cohesion dynamics in the UK means, therefore, engaging with places, their rhythms and realities of everyday life, and their politics of belonging. Places and has always been important because most people live within a micro-society of friends, family, and informal relations and groups, and in an, era, in an era of mass global communications, it is all too easy to underestimate this. The phenomenon of social cohesion is about, really, the contested dynamics of getting by, getting on, and getting along in everyday life. In this respect, places structurally do not pre-exist social relations. They are made of them. So place we uh, conceptualized as, following Douglas Massey, as constituted of networks of social relations, involving both relations that are perceived to be local and distant by residents, which means that social cohesion is embedded within the complex of social relations in forming places. One of the main findings of the research was that the degree to which migration is seen as irregular and positive rather than an exceptional and negative factor in forming local environments plays a key role in the development of social relations within any given place. That is really one, that was one of our major findings. The established relationship between place and belonging is therefore a key aspect in forming the encounter between long-term residents and new arrivals. We argue it's the interplay between local networks of social relations and definitions of what constitutes the local in relation to the distance that shapes the experience of belonging to a place. These definitions of locality, as opposed to or, in, or indeed linked to the distant, emerge at the intersection of race, class and ethnicity, whose specific role in defining local structures of belonging is grounded in the history of each place. A central thread of our research con conclusions is that the dominant narratives and practices in local settings are key to understanding how new immigrants will be perceived and addressed. Although these narratives are fluid and can even overlap, we identified one narrative that is about homogeneity and settledness and another that is about acknowledging histories of immigration and heterogeneity. The dominant narrative can, be, can either be that of a population who view, views the locality as our place, or it can be one where no ethnic group is in the ascendancy, either culturally or politically. If the dominant narrative has strong elements of perceiving the local areas comprised of people who are the same or like us, 
until new immigrants appear, then the likelihood of a more negative response to new arrivals is heightened. Alternatively, if the dominant narrative is one that recognises the history of immigration to the area and the mixture of residents in terms of a range of social divisions and sees no ethnic group as having a claim on the area, then the likelihood of an accepting response towards new immigrants is correspondingly heightened. This is presented by people in the area as an outcome of the history of the locality. In both these instances, the dominant narratives have repercussions for processes of incorporation and patterns of identification. And I should say uh, that we found um, evidence, example of both these narratives across all our six sites, Northern Ireland in Scotland and the four sites in England. So obviously we found examples, as I'm going to show demonstrating about London, we found examples of both in London, uh, but equally in Leicester we found both, in a small town like Dungannon in Northern Ireland we found both. But to one extent or another, in the snapshot moment of when we were doing the research in the mid-2000s, there usually could be discerned a dominant narrative, one that was more in circulation than the other, than the others in each of the places. So to turn to uh, spaces of multiculture in London. So what I'm going to do now is look at the main characteristics of the two places in London in which we base the research and use interviews in each place to illustrate how dominant narratives and practices in local settings are key to understanding how new immigrants are perceived and addressed. Now, all, all, the, um, all of the interviews I'm going to quote from are by people who we term part of the long-term settled population. So just to repeat, that's anybody who settled in Britain prior to 1997. So to kill, both Kilburn and Downham, the two areas, were highly rated in the um, deprivation index developed by New Labour, which measured the population density of people deemed economically vulnerable. The over 50s, people with disabilities, single parents, minority ethnic groups, young people, and the unemployed. So I'm going to look at Kilburn first and then Downham. Now, Kilburn is centrally located in London's northwest and is divided by Kilburn High Road, which separates it into two local authority jurisdictions, Brent and Camden. Kilburn has high unemployment, less than half of the adult population are in full time work high levels of overcrowding and housing need, low levels of home ownership, high levels of teenage pregnancy, and very high levels of crime. In both Kilburn wards, the majority ethnic population, so that is, under our definition, those who would have ticked white British in the census, are under 50% of the population. 17% overall of the Kilburn population is Irish-born. There's no, ex no accurate figures for second or third generation. African-Caribbean population is 13%, uh, actually it averaged across the two wards, probably 15%. Another very significant group are black Africans, of whom the Somali population form the largest portion. Kilburn is part of, really, is very quintessentially uh, an example of London's celebrated cosmopolitanism, and is defined by historically multi-layered and intersecting migratory flows notably of a Jewish population, migrants from the Caribbean, and a large Irish settlement from the 50s onwards, 
but new migrant groups stemming from Eastern Europe, Africa, Southeast Asia, China, Latin America and elsewhere have arrived in the past um, 15 years. Unlike some other working class, class sites in the research, a wide range of facilities were available in Kilburn. The Somali Centre was thriving in a supported and cherished community centre, which otherwise mostly uh, catered for various uh, groups for elders. There were local Polish, Russian and Philippine shops, Mexican, Russian and restaurants and noodle bars were on the high street, and many new arrivals were attached to local churches and mosques, which supported them very much in the spirit of multicultural Kilburn. The area continues to support a number of long-established and popular pubs that value and preserve their reputation uh, as multicultural and convivial. So to explore our themes, uh, I want to begin by looking at an interview with an older participant in Kilburn who migrated from Ireland to London in 1936 when he was two years old. He described, and as you know, these were all life narrative interviews, he described a rich complex of insider and outsider experiences as he charted his life course. Bullied and humiliated when first in London, as he was Irish and an incomer, he was later evacuated to Wales during the Second World War. This experience cemented his relationship with London because with others from his primary school in Kilburn, he faced a relentless hostility to Londoners from Welsh people primarily encountered in the schools, but also in the households in which they were billeted. Returning to Kilburn, he felt the Irish there, although not in Ireland, were more accepted after a joint effort in the face of war. While still a teenager, he returned to Ireland for a year to live with an aunt, as a precaution because his sister was ill with tuberculosis. In Ireland, he was taunted as English, much to his amazement. Now, 50 years later, he describes himself as, in quote, a Londoner, very much Irish. He uses an Irish passport and has never applied for a British passport. He's both thoroughly incorporated to life in London and strongly mindful of his Irish origins. His incorporation is place-based, as he accounts himself as lucky to have grown up in an area of London that drew not only more Irish, but more people from all over the world to it from the 1950s onwards. He describes Kilburn as an extremely tolerant place. And so this is uh, his quote. My uh, PowerPoint is just the quotes, because I can never deduce what my main points are enough to put on PowerPoint, only to articulate them. Uh, so this is his, um, uh, one of his uh, extracts from his interview. For many, many years, the tolerance is there. It's got a great history to it in itself. And if you go back in the history of the people who've come and lived here and what was produced from there, there is a richness of history connected with Kilburn. You don't have someone go mad at you down the high road because you happen to be black or you happen to be Asian or something. I mean, in Brent, if you don't like immigrants and all that, don't come to Brent. You know you are living in the wrong place. Only English people left here are the tolerant ones. He described the area as rich due to its heterogeneity and history of immigrations. This history, he says, is why Kilburn is rel relatively, it's a relative thing, immune to racialized hostilities or religious antagonisms. And he puts this down to the great mixture which has always characterized the place, and that most people learn to live with each other in the area very quickly. 
This is an example of an immigrant whose mode of incorporation into his country of settlement was via a progressive form of localism. This embrace of locality is well documented, obviously, as a form of allegiance in England, specifically one that can bypass the exclusionary basis of the majority ethnicity. Here we see it linked to a characterisation of the locality as a particularly tolerant place that is open to all because of its history of immigration. This was echoed in many other interviews in the area. Now, in the southern part of um, uh, Kilburn lies a vast and particularly uh, deprived uh, uh, local housing estate, called, just called in the, uh, the South Kilburn. I think it has a name, but everyone calls it the South Kilburn Estate. And it's a large estate identified as blighted with high unemployment, high youth unemployment, chronic overcrowded crowding. Now, the South Kilburn Estate was multicultural, is multicultural, and included diverse new arrivals of global labour migrants, and was particularly the place in Kilburn where asylum seekers and refugees were settled, as well as long-term settled residents. The multi-deprivation of the area, as I say, was acute. The historical and socially intersecting layers of sustained poverty, unemployment, casualised and informal work that shaped estate life constituted, in the view of the local Catholic priests, challenges beyond the remit and spirit of any regeneration project. One resident illustrated this point with her story that regeneration money had, had recently paid for an art installation on the estate, and this had become a well-known and convenient landmark for the local drug market that supplied the wider London nighttime economy. Experience of informal work, casualisation and poor living conditions, the lot obviously of many new immigrants, was not new to Kilburn, and many of the long-term settled remembered the realities of migration and poverty of the 1930s. In the view of one older Kilburnian, the South Kilburn estate had gone full circle, with infrastructural regeneration of housing that only replaced one monstrosity with another monstrosity, and welfare-to-work programmes only providing routes into work that was deregulated and unsupervised, as had been in the Depression years. Notwithstanding this weft and weave of deprivation, we found inter-ethnic conviviality and acceptance of migrancy on the estate continued, as in the past, as a feature of otherwise difficult or impoverished, impoverished circumstances, as one, in key informer, as one key informer summarized for us. So she says, and it's a very deprived area, there are lots of problems, you know, but you don't ever feel it's around racial tensions or cultural tension. There is very high employment, there's fairly low skills base in the workforce, there's poor housing, poor statutory resources in the area, and so, you know, I think the population here encounters some challenges, but I feel they deal quite admirably with those, and they generally rub fairly well together considering the challenges they face. This key informant, herself a long-term resident of the area, was clear that deprivation could not easily be equated with failed social resourcefulness and failed resilience. The history of the place and resulting narrative provided a central means of survival, embedded in ways of belonging grounded in the acceptance of others. From another perspective, the following indicates what a young second-generation Irishman thinks about the area and how this is shaped by his interpretation of the history of the locality. 
He said, it's Irish and Caribbean youngsters, and they do go round here, which is quite confusing. Not like anywhere else, they plot together. <coughs> and here in Stonebridge, they plot together. They hang around together. Whereas in Hackney, or somewhere like that, or Newcross in Lewisham, or whatever, there's big Irish communities and Caribbeans that live next to each other, but they don't mix. But here, for some reason, they mix. I sort of know why. It's, you know, back ages and ages ago, when everyone came over, some Irish people would buy up and then let Caribbean stay, and then some Caribbeans would buy up and let Irish stay. So it's a sort of mutual respect thing. From Labrook Grove, it started up and just moved up towards here. In this account, this, in this place, a shared history of belonging and discrimination of the African, Caribbean and Irish communities in Kilburn can be seen as having produ produced some shared feelings of belonging and connection. The involvement in similar processes of resistance to discrimination and marginalisation in the context of migration to Britain and in relation to the British post-colonial experience created a positive footprint that was to make Kilburn a place of constructive relations between different migrant and um, sorry, uh, long-term settled individuals and communities to this day. Um, now. <clears throat> now, this young man was asked specifically whether he thought some people do or don't belong here in Kilburn. And his, I'm using a second quote from him because this did explain his rationale was different to many people, but it echoed what quite a lot of people said. Now, I'd say everyone should be here because do you know what I mean? It's an island like. You have to get here by plane or by boat. Do you know what I mean? Don't know, but if they weren't then, it's very poignant that everyone is an immigrant here. So everyone belongs here. Do you know what I mean? And if you look at East Europeans now, everyone is saying they're coming in, nicking jobs. It's just they are working harder, really. And like the working class can't be bothered to work, so they can moan about them. Do you know what I mean? But then the people, I've noticed this year, when they become old and they got grandkids, will be just as cockney as me, or just as from London as I am. So there is no difference. It doesn't really matter where everyone is from. So, in a way, in this statement, he's not denying that there are problems, but he's saying that the, in the way, what happens is an inevitable process of bottom-up bottom up integration. A line of demarcation is, however, drawn concerning the working class, and it's quite clear from the rest of his interview that by this he means the English work, the white English working class. This is the only group of whom he speaks negatively, and that includes second-generation Irish people in the area who think they are English. Now, his um, account, I wanted to just also look at this next one. In painting, in painting what could come across as a fairly rosy picture of Kilburn, and I'm slightly biased because I, I lived there for 17 years, <laughs> so I am slightly biased. Um, the, um, however, of course, there's such a difficult economic context in Kilburn that uh, it did, of course, produce tensions, and some of these were directed towards new arrivals, and particularly that was the disadvantaged second and third generation young men of various past immigrations. Amongst some of them, there was uh, uh, some um, uh, tension towards new arrivals. 
Although appreciation of the area of, of living in Kildman usually rode in tandem with discontent about the situation. And this quote is from a young second generation African Caribbean man who was positively and very actively involved in the Kilburn Youth Centre, and he was, um, which catered for the diversity of Kilburn. And uh, he was asked what he thought of England today, Britain today, England today, and his answer was, England is shit really. England, I hate England. I prefer to really, you know, when they go telling you to go back to your country and that shit, I would prefer to go back. Because all it is, is the money, and everyone knows that. That's why so many people from different races are all coming in, just trying to chase the England coin, because they know it's the most powerful thing going on. That's all it is going on. And it, that was an example of the long-term settled young men we interviewed. And it was quite a common refrain, particularly amongst Irish and African-Caribbean second generations, despite me quoting the young Irish second generation before, in that they seem to simultaneously register their bitterness about their own experiences of marginalisation and thwarted social mobility. It was really about thwarted social mobility. Um, and they felt, therefore, they weren't able to fully participate. But on the other hand, they, uh, while feeling marginalised by class, they were alert to um, the ways in which they, uh, because of living in Kilburn, were highly skilled and able to get around London. And so they talked about, oh, we can go anywhere. We've grown up in Kilburn. We know it. We know all sorts. We know all people, and we can filter around, around London very easily. So that they found they could move across and between the territories and boundaries of London's multi-ethnic youth culture, and they attributed this to the area in which they'd grown up. So those contradictory um, uh, tendencies and forces in their lives were broadly just held by them in tandem together. So um, finally on this, on an area which predominantly the narrative was a positivity about heterogeneity and inward migration, but not without tensions, and another area that we um, um, uh, looked at where this was true was a um, High Fields and Leicester. What both of those places had in common is a sort of social and cultural context where, because of the acknowledged mixed heritage of the place, nobody claims to have a predominant right to belong and benefit from shared resources. And although tensions came out about some new incomers, it was a generalised tension, and a lot of it was directed at England being shit or uh, at an, a knowledge of the structural processes that are underway. So turning to end to Downham. Now Downham in Lewisham is a local authority ward in the very far southeast of south of the borough, near the border with the county of Kent. The Downham estate was built in order to respond to severe housing shortage in London in the 1920s and 30s, especially the capitals in the city Dockman areas of Deptford and Bermondsey. There was a significant internal migration from the central dock areas to Dock Downham in that period, and people set about creating a new life for themselves. The area has been in gradual economic decline since the 1960s, <coughs> with the closure of many local facilities. There are a higher number of economically inactive people than the national or Lewisham averages, 
poor educational records, especially in secondary schools, and an older than average population, and uh, an above average percentage of people renting. The arrival of mostly Albanian and Tamil refugees, asylum seekers, and later East European migrants in the first decade of the 21st century has been accompanied by a significant increase in racialized social antagonisms. This was particularly acute within and around the underachieving local secondary school, Mallory, whose surplus places were filled by pupils from new migrant groups and established minority ethnic communities. That's quite a separate topic to go into, but it eventually became an academy and it was a source of much local controversy. As a response to the upsurge in racially aggravated crimes in the mid 2000s, the locality was targeted by a range of social intervention initiatives implemented by pub public and non-governmental organisations. And in particular, a new secondary school developed, uh, was built, and a new leisure centre. For many residents moving to Down in the interwar years, the place had provided a huge improvement in comparison with the unhealthy and crowded situations they left behind in the Docklands. This immigration was a sort of internal migration. It was only of a few, a few miles, but it had a major impact on the narratives of belonging in the area. And the migration may only have been of a few miles, but it might as well have been about 500 miles, if not 5,000. The realities were described to us by a member of a local regeneration unit in Lewisham. Downham is an area which has only been around for 80 years. Mid-1920s, there was a huge move out from areas like Bermondsey and Rotherhide. It started off with nothing, basically, just a road with houses, no facilities, no shops. Down on the area itself borders on Bromley. Bromley residents were very, very, very unhappy about this new thing and even built an actual wall in Alexander Crescent at the time. If you look at some of the newspapers at the time, it's actually quite interesting because if you think about things, say, 50 years on, when people are talking about BME groups coming into the country, it's the same kind of thing. What are these people doing here? They are dirty, etc. So there was all of that. There was a very difficult, they were seen as Bermondsey scum, were very working class and that kind of stuff. In Downham, the othering of this formative migration into the area was based on social class, rather than ostensibly on any ethno-national differentiation and the lasting impact was different to the effects of immigration into an area like Hilden. What happened in Downham was more akin to the social processes accompanying movements out of East London in the post-war period. The incentive was new houses, and these were provided but little else. And in the face of this absence of facilities and local hostility from existing middle-class residents, these internal migrants had to forge communities themselves. In Downham, this gave rise to a local solidarity, fueled by feelings of resentment at a bad deal and thwarted aspirations of nobility into the middle class, which Downham's proximity to the leafy suburb of Brobney seemed to promise. At the time of our research, all but two of the many youth centres that previously provided a successfully integrated network of communal spaces for young people had been closed down. Many local pubs that supported life in Downham since the days of the internal migration had been closed, producing a devastated cultural landscape that, in the view of one long-term settled man, led to most people feeling like all their kind of coordinates are disappearing of how they define themselves. 
As we found elsewhere, in, for example, in Braunston, in Leicester, another uh, big estate out from the centre of Leicester, deprivation was concentrated, localised and culturally, to some extent embedded, and the estate of few resources to resist. Partly as a result of this history, Downham was involved in a form of settled backlash in the 1990s and 2000. And by this, we really mean that discourses of locality and convenience uh, become prevalent in the reinforcement or, of, uh, or challenging of existing social hierarchies uh, within any given place. And it, it involves local self-representation in terms of homogeneity and closeness. In this way, pre-existing social tensions and inequalities in Downham were the background for hostile reactions to the arrival to, of new groups. Popular discourses emerged framing newcomers as people who would exert a further strain on scarce resources rather than as people who could contribute to the improvement of the socio-economic context of the area. So, we detected great wariness towards new immigration and sometimes outright hostility. One interviewee was a man who was born in Downham in 1938, not long after his parents moved there from Bermondsey, and he'd worked for the National Dock Labour Board for most of his life, first as a clerk and then as a welfare officer. He was asked what it had been like growing up in the area. And this is what he said. It does not look like this now. Very easy, because there was no cars. The milkman used to come round with a horse and cart. The bread used to come round with a horse and cart. Later on, we had a chap come, Brown. They still have, they still have got a shop in Verdant Lane. They used to come round with a lorry. When cars started to come in, he came round with a small lorry and he had vegetables. And um, it was mainly vegetables, green vegetables, potatoes, greens, carrots, and things like that. He used to come round on a Saturday. And then on a Sunday, he'd come down with shrimps and wrinkles, which was the staple diet of people living in Bermondsey. He talked about that era fondly, and as one when everyone knew each other. He was very concerned about the impact of rapid social and economic change on the locality. I mean, I'm not kind of prejudiced, but the main change in my room is that when I was a youngster, or even after that, when I was in my 20s, you knew a fantastic amount of the neighbours and the people up and down the road by name, if not by name, by sight. You used to say hello and good morning as you passed, mainly because people were walking up and down to the shops. We used to shop at Grove Park, or we'd go down to Downham Way. And even, you know, after I was older, I mean, they were the main shopping areas. And now people go to Bromley and Croydon and everywhere. And you knew people. But I should think there is about four white people in my immediate area and all the rest are coloured, or, you know, either black or Indian. That is the main difference. Didn't see if you saw one or two black people, even in the 60s, 70s, up to the 80s, on the estate. Here, the changes in the locality are signalled and referenced through shopping patterns and immigration. The steady economic decline of the area, largely bypassed by the recent economic boom in London, has reduced the range of facilities, including commercial outlets. Changes that have been happening in the retail sector with the concentration of shopping facilities in major town centres and on the outskirts of places and the consequent erosion of spaces of interaction are perceived through the explanatory lens of immigration. A particular narrative of change based on the colour of his neighbours develops. 
in contrast, in Kilburn, we'd found that some decline of um, big outlets on the high street once Brent Cross had opened, the Brent Cross shopping centre had opened, was discussed as a loss of facilities, but not as a loss of community. The repercussions of the social and economic changes transforming the locality and the mixed reactions to this often combine feelings of loss and destabilisation. An immigration policy, the ease of migration, is put back in the dock again as the very, the very least exacerbating the situation. That the creation of community in Downer was out of an internal migration that was received with hostility did not figure for him as a point of empathy with more recent newcomers. Rather, the defensiveness that was generated at that point had secured into a conception of a homogenous community with its own distinctiveness and sense of belonging. The history of their original migration served as a motif of the belongingness of the original settlers, and anyone with that heritage was viewed as one of us. His current concerns are all, all focused on the changes that have dissipated the community that they had forged in the area. The existence of this narrative of loss and belonging and of the specific characteristics uh, associated with being from here and being one of us had complex ramifications in the area that were forged at the intersection of race, whiteness, ethnicity, Englishness and class. The statement of one young black man it illustrates this, long-term uh, long settled. Downham is just for white folk, really, and they want to just hold on to that. If you know it's Lucian, you've got black folk in there. Deptford, you've got black folk. Newcross, Peckham, Sydenham, Forest Hill, you've all got black folk everywhere. Downham was known, okay, Bromley is for white folk. Downham is classed as Bromley. They want to keep their white folk. But where so many people, where so many people get moved into Downham, they're not getting happy. So the easiest thing for them to do is make peace with them because someone will get hurt. Another young man we interviewed describes the area when he was a child in the 1980s and the impact it had on the family. His father actually had moved from Bermondsey when he was 10 years old, so was part of the foundational group in the area, but his mother was an immigrant from Ireland. When they married, they moved into a house in Downham. He describes his mother as cosmopolitan because she had moved many times and said she did make friends with their immediate neighbours, but despite this, he never really felt included. So this was the 1980s. But then it was quite well set. I mean, you got kind of, kind of, it was quite impenetrable, because that, in a way, because the initial atmosphere up there was that they all had this kind of common heritage of coming from a different area, so that it was, it was kind of theirs, really. And it was very difficult to get into that because you wouldn't be joining among people who lived here. You wouldn't be able to share in common with them the fact that they came from Bermondsey, wherever. I don't know, maybe that was an aspect of it. I definitely get that feeling. I wouldn't say at any point we ever got into, broke into the kind of white main, the white working class body of social networks. I think I kind of like stayed on the periphery of that. Downham was not as, in, as internally homogenous as the dominant narrative asserted, either, neither, neither now or in the past. There is, for example, a significant divide between the east and the west of the neighbourhood. And this is structured around the intersection of perceptions of housing, class, ethnicity and belonging. 
More specifically, the prevalence of smaller houses and flats in the East means that people who want to buy better and larger properties were either forced to move to the west of Downham, where there are two or three bedroom houses, or to move out of the area altogether. As a consequence, there seems to be a higher concentration of what are called by the local NGOs challenging and deprived families in the east than in the west of Downham. Interestingly, as this excerpt shows, this east-west division, and I'm talking geographically as east and west because that is how it divided, is usually referred to as north and south down, even though they're actually geographically east and west. And a local key informant explained this. Now, you know that North Downham is actually East Downham and South Downham is actually West Downham, yes? Okay, right. Now, where you've got, uh, as in North Downham, you've got a much higher percentage of flats, owner-occupiers would be less. What happens is that people with a bit more ambition, they tend to move either to the south of the area where there are more uh, houses or out. And I think the big problem for Downham is that it's going to be difficult to change until you get people who can afford to move to the bigger houses to stay there, but they can't because the accommodation isn't there. And in terms of those who are in social housing and who aren't working, you're going to get a bigger concentration of them as flats become free. And I just worry that you're going to get this huge polarisation of families who are poorer and with more problems. But what we noted is that the substitution of the north with the east and of the South with the West, seems to reveal the game of symbolic oppositions structuring the politics of belonging within Downham, based as it is on the association of the poorest and most ethnically diverse area, the East, with multicultural Lewisham, which is actually geographically in the North, and of the relatively better off and whiter area, the West, with white English Bromley, which geographically is in the South. So although the actual geography is east-west, the, the naming is north-south because everything about Downham is in terms of is it Lewisham or is it Bromley? And that, uh, that threaded its way through um, the divisions. And as I said, in, interwoven into that was race, ethnicity and class. To conclude, despite all I've done this afternoon, it's false not to erect a false dichotomy between Pilgrim and uh, Downham, as there are examples of each type, both types of narrative belonging in both areas. Nevertheless, we, uh, we have, I've characterised here, what I've characterised here is the predominant narrative belonging we found in each place. Our aim was to analyse what underpins positive and negative outcomes of the encounters between long-term residents and new immigrants. Specific histories and memories of immigration ex help explain these differences. Kilburn was one of the areas where the awareness of the fact that migration was an integral part of the area coincided with local narratives of belonging, which were based on not being from here, based, and based on the acceptance of diversity and the idea that newcomers can contribute economically. Whereas Downham was more typical of areas of settled backlash being from here that challenge ideologies of equality. The history of place and migration are key in determining the local availability of the resources needed for a positive resolution of the conflicts threaded through processes of social cohesion. Places such as Kilburn and Leicester where, and parts of Leicester where people tend to view the, the arrival of new groups 
either positively or neutrally, are not better than places such as Darnham, where the arrival of new groups coincided with social unrest. Kilburn is a place in which migrants see the necessity to accept and mediate between a complex range of social and culturally diverse individuals and groups came to be accepted as part of everyday life in a more historical perspective. Because of its long history, positive resolution of migrated related inequalities and its very diverse populations, it had had more opportunities to recognize, understand and accept overall the process of pluralization of its social fields. On the contrary, places such as Downham had a diff different historical experience of pluralization, mainly referring to the displacement to a place in the country of people working in the Bermondsey docks in the interwar years. Until the early 2000s, the main reference to cultural and social diversity in Downham, if it was referenced, was informed by the hierarchies of Britishness or unrecognized non-Britishness in the case of the Irish population, characterizing the diverse population that had come from Bermondsey. The lack of recognition of its own social and cultural diversity in the relatively smaller and more recent impact of international migration means that places such as Downham are still self-representing themselves as homogenous, which means that the arrival of new groups tends to be seen as an exception rather than the norm. Overall, uh, overall available opportunities and resources, local politics and narratives of belonging, and the related hierarchies of entitlement to social mobility, we found to be the key factors informing people's satisfaction with place, with place of settlement and the relative possibilities of resilience and vulnerability to social and economic change in different places. In other words, people's satisfaction with the place they live in results from the interplay between where they feel they should be at and where they actually are at in relation to their self-representation, their perceived social position and their understanding of who should be where. The outcomes of these interactions will be seen as largely positive or negative by people inhabiting a specific place to spend, depending on how well individual group and group expectations—excuse me—depending on how well individual and group expectations see themselves as matching the actual possibilities encountered locally. The interplay between all of these dimensions influences not only people's satisfaction. With, with their places of um, habitation, but also impacts on local dynamics of social cohesion as they influence the terms in which local inequalities can be resolved by people sharing a specific place in terms they deem to be positive and successful. Thank you. Thank you.